I'm Aaron Camino-Smith, and this is Fresh from the Hill, inside stories of noteworthy Cornellians. Very excited for my guest today. Hi, Ritu. Hi. We are very happy to have you. I'm here with Ritu Raman, class of 2012. Ritu, you are a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. Uh, real quick, what does MIT stand for? Um, I think it's Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but who can be sure, really? It's not Cornell. <laughs> we won't tell anyone at MIT that you said that. And thank you for saying it that way, as if you might not possibly be so positive about where you are. <laughs> uh, I'm never completely sure. <laughs> uh, so we are talking to you now through a phone conversation. So apologies if the audio isn't perfect, uh, but you sound great to me. Oh, thank you. And thank you for not objecting to me calling you from the middle of my lab. <laughs> yes, we see uh, there currently, Ritu has one of those microscopes behind her with the two eyepieces, which I thought only existed in movies. I didn't know those were actually used uh, by any real people anymore. No, these are actually props we use when we're doing interviews, you know, just to convince <laughs> people it's real science. <laughs> Touche. We got it. So we will soon be seeing you using eyedroppers of putting little drops of things. Um, oh, for sure. Colored liquids. Colored liquids. Lab, yes, a lot of colored of liquids <laughs> and slides. We'll just use the word slides. When I say Cornell University, what is the mm -hmm. first thought that comes to your mind? Um, I think lucky is the word I always associate with Cornell. Lucky? Well, please expand. <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, I, I moved to the United States in 2001 when I was almost 10 years old. And before that, I'd lived in India and Kenya. And after I moved here, um, I was moving every couple of years. I lived kind of all over the country and I was, you know, in high school in Connecticut and somebody, everybody was like talking about college all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, I guess, you know, college is a thing that I knew that I was going to do. Um, but in India, where I went to elementary school, I was just used to the idea of, you know, when you get to about college age, you take these college entrance exams and then you get into college. And I didn't realize that there's this whole process here that's like taking SATs and writing essays and getting letters of recommendation. So I was like, I don't really know how to do this. And I figured I was afraid to ask. And, you know, the internet didn't have as much information on it as that time, you know, uh, about 10 years ago. And I was very confused and I heard somebody say that Ivy League is a good thing. And so I looked up what an Ivy League college was. And around that time, my career aspiration was also to be an astronaut um, because that's the sort of thing that a teenager thinks about. Naturally. And, and I was like, all right, well, I know that Ivy League is a good thing. And I know that Cornell has the best engineering school in the Ivy League. So I'm going to apply there. <laughs> So you and just set, of, set goals for yourselves based on what you had heard from other people? Essentially. I mean, I didn't yeah. know anyone really that had gone to college in America, so I had no really other information to go on. Um, so kind of just based on information that I overheard and information that I found, I think I was very lucky to hear about Cornell and kind of apply and get in without even really knowing what a challenge it is to get into a school like Cornell. Um and I just, I really appreciate that opportunity. And I, I got to call it my lucky break. I see. So that definitely, it sounds lucky even just to have heard of Cornell and then lucky mm -hmm. to get into Cornell. Did For you sure. have other schools on your list that you were hoping to get into? Or you just said, we're going to Cornell? 
I think, you know, it was one of those things where they said Ivy League was good. So I applied to all the Ivy Leagues and I didn't, nobody told me about safety schools. So I didn't do that. Um, and so I got into a couple of schools and, you know, and I was happy about them. But then um, Cornell had sent me an early letter specifically being like, we want you in engineering and we feel like it's a really good fit for you. And my astronaut dream was still in place. So I was like, well, I mean, this clearly seems like the best fit. And then what did you major at at Cornell? Uh, I majored in mechanical engineering, mostly because the department was called mechanical and aerospace engineering. Again, uh. astronaut. See, <laughs> like I, you know, for a 15, 16 year old, I was pretty, uh, focused on that dream. Um, but then I couldn't get into intro to aerospace in my um, first year. And so another lucky break, um, a girl that I met at Balch Hall was like, you know, I'm taking intro to biomedical engineering and the professor has a really cool British accent. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so I took that class instead. And, you know, I learned that you know, I, I knew for a long time that, you know, medicine is cool, but I'm kind of squeamish. And I was like, well, I don't want to see blood and touch gross things. Um, so I was like, I'm not going to go to medical school. But I didn't realize that there was so much that you could do as an engineer to impact medicine and to help people um, through medical implants or devices or other technologies. And so I think that sort of really captured my imagination. And after that, the astronaut dream kind of died away. And this idea of being a mechanical engineer that makes um, medical devices to help people really took root. And since then, it's been kind of straight sailing. And so you continued to look for professors with British accents. Yes, and pretty much. So you, <laughs> Almost exclusively. Yeah, so your time at, at Cornell was spent... Um, uh, learning more about the the medical engineering, and then what did you decide to do as you were approaching that final year at Cornell? Mm -hmm. um, it's really just I, I feel like you know I tell this story and I'm just revealing how little I really knew about the academic process. Um, but you know Cornell, like I was saying, I, my family was a fairly recent immigrants to America at that point of time. Um, we didn't have you know a ton of social or economic resources or capital. And so I was just, you know, really excited that we were able to pay for Cornell and that I would be able to finish graduating. And when other people were talking about going to graduate school, getting their master's, getting their PhD, um, I mean, I thought it seemed really interesting because it seemed like it opened up different careers and opportunities for them. But I also thought, well, I can barely afford to pay for undergrad. So there's no way that I'm going to, you know, where am I going to get money to pay for a master's or PhD? And then I said that, I think somewhere at some, I was eating free pizza. That's all I remember about this. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> where pizza. I was. I was eating free pizza as an undergrad does. And somebody was like, well, you know, you don't have to pay for graduate school in you know, science and engineering. I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, no, that, you know, you go, you do research and they pay you. And I like genuinely didn't believe them. I didn't believe that tuition waivers or stipends were a thing. And then I went and I looked it up online. And I found out it was a thing and that maybe graduate school wasn't a pipe dream and I actually could afford to go. Um, and so I was like, okay, maybe I'll go and I'll, you know, get a master's. I wasn't thinking PhD yet. So in my junior year at Cornell, I heard about this program called the 
Kessler Fellowship for Entrepreneurial Engineers. And I applied to it thinking, well, maybe I can get a master's and I can go do a startup. And that sounds like an exciting thing to do. Um, so through that program, I actually um, was able to pick any startup that I wanted and work there over summer. And I actually worked at a startup in Ithaca in that sort of startup-y area near the airport. Um, it was called Rionix. And when I was working there, I had a lot of fun, but I realized that people doing the jobs that I thought were interesting or that I wanted to do all had a PhD. So I was like, I guess that's what I got to do. I got to do a PhD. And that decision was made right before the fall of my senior year. Um, and so that worked out very nicely because I spent that whole fall applying for um, graduate school. And I also lucked out because all those applications are due around, you know, kind of November, December, January. And in November of that year, I got my green card. And so I was eligible to apply for all these graduate um, fellowships as well. Um, so another, you know, just a lucky break. It, it worked out very nicely for me. And I got into graduate school and I got some fellowships to fund my way through it. Um, and so I ended up getting my master's and my PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of Illinois. And so how long of a process is that PhD? <laughs> that is a great question and a painful question for many people. Um, it, it very much depends on the person, the field and the project. Um, you know, it can be as short as, a, you know, three years. It can be as long as 10 years. Um, I've heard some horror stories. Um, I would say in mechanical engineering, um, in general, we're looking at about five years, including a master's, sometimes a little bit longer. Um, I had, I'm going to keep saying lucky because I really do hmm. feel lucky, but I had some, my first couple years of research at Illinois, um, I hit a lot of roadblocks, but then once I got some basic technical issues sorted out, um, you know, it was just kind of powering through. So I got my, I graduated 2012 from Cornell. I got my master's in 2013. I got my PhD in 2016. Um, and then I came to MIT in 2017. So that was pretty quick getting through your PhD program. Yeah, it was, it was honestly, it was quicker than I anticipated, which is why <laughs> I, I, I really think that it was um, part luck, part hard work and just, I think I found something, a project and also just a lifestyle that I really enjoy and that I think matches my skills and interests. So you keep saying luck and, and you sound so modest as you're saying that because you know, you don't just get into Cornell or get into MIT or start working at MIT or get into a PhD program just through luck. I mean, there, there mm -hmm. must've been hard work. There must've been dedication, sleepless nights, uh, family support there had to be something else in there so what are you not not hiding from us but what are you what are you glossing over there there must have been some bumps for you it sounds like there was something some uh you said some technical issues it just sounds like you worked very hard sure I mean I guess <laughs> I don't even think it's modesty so much you know as I guess I think about people that I grew up with um so like I said I grew up in India and Kenya um and growing up in those places, I, I had relatively okay schooling, um, not the best, and moving around a lot also meant that, you know, I wasn't really going to grades in any particular order. I think I did fifth grade like three different times in many different places. Um, I think I went from sixth grade to third grade at one point. Lots of things kind of went all over the place. But what I learned along this process um, 
is that there are a lot of smart, hardworking people out there. Um, you know, a lot of the kids I grew up with, it's not like I was blowing them out of the water in tests or anything like that. Um, and it's not like they weren't working as hard as I was, or they didn't have, you know, interests or dreams or family support. Um, but I think, you know, I see how much of what I've experienced is just, my dad was applying to jobs in a few places and, um, from India and we were looking at, you know, we might end up moving to Cyprus or we might end up moving to Saudi Arabia or we might end up moving to the United States. And sometimes it's just one paperwork process faster than the other, one job offer comes through versus the other. And that can, you know, com sort of completely change the course of your life or the track of your life. Um, so I think that's why I say luck so much is I, I know that I'm smart and I know that I work hard and I'm not trying to diminish that. I guess my point is that um, I do work hard and I do have a certain set of skills and a level of intelligence, but I think that I have to say that luck plays a big role um, in taking all of those things and making sure that somebody has access to the opportunities that they can use to grow and kind of reach their full potential. You said your your father was applying to jobs in different places. What does you, was your father do that meant he was looking for so many different places to go? Mm -hmm. um, so both my parents are actually engineers, um, and my grandfather, who I spent a lot of time with um, when I was growing up in India, is also an engineer. Um, so my grandfather was a civil engineer, my mom's a chemical engineer, and my dad's a mechanical engineer. Um, and so initially, actually, my first memories are actually of growing up in Kenya. And my dad was helping put up um, communication towers um, in rural villages. You know, they're like these big towers that we see everywhere. They're sort of helping connect places to the rest of the world. Um, and so, you know, weekdays, we'd live in Nairobi, which is the capital of Kenya. It's a pretty big city. But then weekends, we would go to these rural villages. Um, and my dad would take me and my mom along as well. Mostly, uh, I think my mom was actually a helpful person to have around. And I was kind of fooling around and <laughs> messing with the local kids. Um, but, you know, I, I think I saw him putting up those communication towers and things like that. And saw him having a real world impact. And that was very exciting for me. Um, so then, uh, around that time, we moved back to India, where I had been born. And my, you know, my parents, because, you know, they'd been doing something very specific to that location, were kind of hunting for jobs for, for a while there. I mean, I think for most of the time that I was in India, I felt like my parents were kind of looking for things to do and, and looking for a way to stably um, stay employed and provide for our family. Um, so yeah, and eventually that that search turned international and that's what brought me here so you had a lot of family support for the engineering idea for being an engineer it almost sounds like wanting to be an astronaut was sort of <laughs> undershooting what your your potential for them because it was so so common for your family um how supportive were they when you decided to switch over to engineering were they overjoyed or were they just happy that you were following um, in their footsteps <laughs> You know, nobody actually ever believes me when I say this because, you know, I feel like the stereotype is that you're Indian and you're an immigrant and you have the option of being a doctor or an engineer and you chose the thing that your parents are. Um, and I think most people think that that's what my path is. But um, so I think the process was very different for me because my parents are just, you know, they're they're not that 
tiger immigrant stereotype, they're super supportive and affectionate. And I think the one thing that they really push is working hard and, and doing something that matters. Um, so when I was thinking about potential majors, it's not like there was a clear choice necessarily. I was good at math and science, but I was probably better to be honest at some of the more creative things like English and writing. And um, my parents, I was like, you know, I think I'm gonna do this mechanical engineering thing because that's what dad is and space seems cool. And my mom was like, well, are you sure? Like, you seem like you're a really good writer and like you could be a journalist. You could, you know, do all these other things. Um, and so, I would say they actually pushed back in the opposite direction to really kind of test my conviction in engineering. And I was like, no, be practical. Like, I don't even have like a green card yet. Like I need to make sure I can get a job that'll get me a visa afterwards. Like you guys are silly. Stop telling me to chase my dreams. I'm going to do this practical thing. Um, but then it ended up that I ended up doing something that I actually do enjoy and like, but also, um, is quite employable, which makes me happy. But, um, you know, it's, it's funny because my mom to this day, you know, I feel like I'm like, look at this mom. I got my PhD. I'm working at MIT. I have this really prestigious career lined up. And she's like, well, you know, I was kind of hoping that you would be like an animator at Pixar. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, like, she was like, well, you know, you used to make really good drawings and you don't do that anymore. I'm like, okay, mom. All right. Like, <laughs> if you're just going to nitpick at this point. So your parents um, just wanted to find any potential places to say this is what you could have. So you know if you were <laughs> if you were an astronaut and you went to the moon, they would say why not Mars? Yeah, no, yeah, no, it's not even that. It she would be like, you know, you used to be a really good pianist and a really good violinist and now you don't practice anymore and I'd be like, "Mom, which I I'm I love my mom. She's my best friend." <laughs> but I'm saying that like her what they care about is that I'm fulfilled and that I'm passionate and that I'm working on something that matters and not so much that I'm a scientist or an engineer. And it sounds like that you're challenged. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yes. And accomplishing um, those those challenges. I, I think so. I, one thing that I kind of always felt growing up is I could come home and show them straight A's and they'd be like, oh, that's great. That's fine. Good job. Um, but if I worked on something really, really hard, say I was struggling with something and I studied really hard and I still got a C, they would still be like, wow, good job for working really hard at that thing. And effort was always the thing that was valued more, I think, than outcome in my family. and that really helped me build my work ethic. I think we all wish we could have your parents. Let's, <laughs> let's all trade. <laughs> yeah, well, they actually live in Ithaca. So, well, um, you know, like maybe I'll, I'll rent them out, sort of Airbnb a parent. That's, that's like that a great idea. Out. I'm sure there are plenty of students at Cornell right now that would like to do that. Mm -hmm. Either for doing laundry or to have supportive parents. One, oh, one sure. or the I, other. I don't know if they'd be open to laundry, but they would definitely be open to stuffing you full of Indian food if that is something that you are open to. <laughs> While you attempt to do your laundry, and as long as you put in a solid effort, they will still approve That's of your true. attempted effort and to do your laundry. And then they help you out. <laughs> yeah. So now that we know you have these wonderful supportive parents, um, mm -hmm. and so you're here, you have your green card, you mm -hmm. have finished your PhD program. Now tell us what made this leap over to Boston and going to MIT? Sure. Um, so I got my PhD and my PhD was very much focused on learning how biological materials sense and adapt to their environments and then using that to build different types of machines. So for example, sort of the pinnacle of my PhD was showing that I could make a robot that moves and walks around but uses skeletal muscle, like living skeletal muscle like we do to do that moving and walking around. 
Um, so I was like, you know what I really want to do is I want to start my own lab. I want to be a professor and I want to make, you know, these types of machines and systems that are half biological and half synthetic. Um, and I knew that there is this amazing person at MIT called Bob Langer. He's a Cornell alum, a former Cornell trustee, and he's the most cited engineer in history. Um, and he's known for taking, you know, these incredibly innovative technologies and translating them into um, medical use. They're actually being used in patients. So I, I was like, this is the person, this is the role model that will teach me what I need to know to make my work impactful and make my future lab successful. Um, and I was actually too scared to apply to his lab because I was like, that person's way out of my league. Like I, I refused. My advisor at Illinois was like, reach out to Bob. And I was like, no, I don't think he's going to want me. And so my advisor actually got frustrated with me and sent an email to Bob himself and was like, I have this person. She's really great. You should hire her. You won't regret it. And Bob responded, um, you know, he's known for answering emails quickly, but he responded within a minute and said, sure send her to MIT. And that's how I ended up here. So another lucky break, really. I'm sensing a trend. <laughs> and so maybe you can sum up for us exactly what you're doing now at MIT, what kind of research? Sure. Um, so like I said, my PhD was very much focused on using biological materials and exploiting how they sense and adapt to their environments. And what I'm trying to do at MIT is thinking about, can we engineer new synthetic materials, um, different types of polymers or metals that also sense and respond to their environments in the same way that biological materials do. Um, and so my dream for my lab is to kind of have the space of biohybrid design, making machines, making implants that are part biological and part synthetic and they're constantly adapting to the environment so that we can solve some of the really big engineering challenges that we haven't been able to address with current technologies. So yeah, I mean, I think something like that is kind of my dream of having sort of, um, you know, little machines or robots that kind of help us lead healthier, safer lives um, and integrate with our bodies because they are part biological. That would be my goal. Wow, and so how close are you to making us live to be 200 years old? Uh, we are so far, <laughs> but you know, I think it's really a team effort. It's an interdisciplinary effort. Um, there are people, you know, working on understanding diseases, working on understanding strategies to treat diseases. And I think kind of where I see my lab falling is, can we make these sort of biohybrid implants, um, that help us sense and respond to different signals in the body so that we can modulate our, um, systems better. So say, you know, we should be getting X amount of this chemical, but we're not getting it. Um, can we put in a little machine that kind of helps us get there and helps us lead a healthier life? Oh, that's perfect. I was going to say, can you give us an example of <laughs> something you've done recently? Do you have any specific examples you could give us? Um, so, for example, one project that I'm working on right now is understanding, you know, every type of neural disorder ranging from PTSD to anxiety to depression um, is sort of some sort of electrical or chemical dysregulation in the brain. And so one project I'm working on right now is being able to measure all of that dysregulation inside the brain and then respond to it in a way um, where we can restore the neural circuit to its um, you know, original or healthy function. Wow, that's, I mean, that's no small undertaking and has such amazing consequences and positive consequences. 
as opposed to just wanting to record a podcast to <laughs> get the word you know, out I, about cool things we're doing at Cornell. Oh, I mean, I, I super appreciate it. I mean, I think we all get value out of something when we see that it impacts other people, um, whether it's medical technology or whether it's just communicating stories about um, different lives that are helpful to people. I know that the first episode of uh, Fresh from the Hill with Svante Myrick was incredibly helpful to me earlier this week when I was listening to it. Um, just learning from his story, I think, helped me get through a hard day, and I really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, and thank you. Wow. Well, that's that seems like a perfect place to sort of wrap ourselves up. Is there anything you would like to promote? Any organizations you've been working with? Uh, so there's something kind of newer that I'm starting right now. It's a new initiative. It's called the Women in STEM Database at MIT, or WISDOM. It's a very clever acronym. <laughs> we're quite proud of it. Um, but essentially, we're trying to address the problem of the fact that a lot of science conferences and events still, um, they're predominantly male speakers. And I would really like to see um, more diverse speakers at panels and events so that people have um, different perspectives and diverse perspectives to listen to. Um, but I think because there are so few women in a lot of different STEM fields, it can be hard to find somebody that's a good fit. Um, so what I'm trying to do is just create a database of women at MIT who are interested in speaking opportunities and list kind of the science things and the outside of science things that they know about and care about and can speak to um, and have that database available and open to people. So if they're ever like, well, I didn't invite any women to speak at this event because I you know, don't know any women to invite, I'm trying to remove that excuse of saying, here's a database of some great women, um, hit them up, call them, have them at your event and and make it better. And how can some of these people get in touch with you? Um, you can get in touch with me um, just by looking at my contact information on my website. It's just my name, rituraman.com. Great. That's R-I-T-U-R-A-M-A-N.com. Yes. Great. Well, Ritu, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy research day. Um, and we really enjoyed it. This was fantastic. Thank you. I enjoyed myself as well, and I will get back to microscoping. To find out more about the podcast and getting involved with Cornell, visit alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni. Music for Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded by Kia Albertson-Rogers, class of 2014. You can also check out my podcast, But I Also, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to check out my website, funnyaron.com, for upcoming shows and to watch some video. You can check me out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Funny Aaron. Thanks so much.